economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lawson Medlin, producer and graduate assistant elect for the Gortney Institute. Today we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research, and finally, our graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. Well, listeners, you might have heard that AI is taking over the academic world anyway. We're not to the point of Terminator yet, uh, but there's been a shock to the system that's really surfaced the last three months. And um, basically, kids can go in and write papers and they can look really, really good, um, even pass uh, plagiarism tests. Um, for some kids, they're written too good, though. So some professors are, are uh, figuring out that that must not be uh, them writing it. Uh, but the general gist of it is you can put in, uh, write a chapter summary from chapter two of any book in the world, and a computer will spend uh, 15 to 20 seconds thinking about it. And before you know it, it'll crank out a thousand word essay uh, reflecting the, the chapter. And it's uh, grammar is pretty tight. Um, I've heard a couple of people complain about, but the samples that Peter showed me, they looked awesome. Uh, and so this has really rocked the boat of uh, academia, especially, but I'm sure it's going to surface in business world and other places on things that uh, people should be doing. Uh, maybe they can use the AI as a crutch. Maybe it won't be bad in, in those circumstances necessarily if it's describing you know, descriptive facts about something related to whether we should do this investment or not, or maybe you're looking to buy a piece of real estate in Ottawa, Kansas. And so you can ask the AI to, to do a little research on uh, housing prices the last year in Ottawa, Kansas. So there could be some real uh, benefits that way. But what we're trying to stop is our kids not being able to think for themselves. And so how they get uh, graded here in college, of course, in part anyway, is through their written work and how well they can assemble thoughts and uh, reading comprehension and among other things. And so um, it's been a real shock to uh, the university system. People are scrambling to see how we're going to adapt to that. And so we thought it'd be a fun episode to engage in since we've got three professors here and a couple uh, graduate students at this point and uh, see what we can bring to the table. So uh, which one of you guys want to go first here, Justin or Peter? Well, I mean, in terms of, so for the listeners, AI, artificial intelligence, it's just uh, like a, a computer that's able to think like a person. That's the way, the best way to describe it. That's how we would describe artificial intelligence. Um, and, you know, it's not like as maybe smart as a person on certain things, but it can do some things uh, well or better than a lot of people can do. So like Russ mentioned, short answers, summarizing really long articles, you can have it do in less than a minute, like a 20 page paper, it can write a decent summary in like 10 seconds. Um, and so I actually, and I've written an article about this, uh, and no one at the, the university has asked my opinion yet, but I'm actually a big fan of AI and education. I think for the most part, uh, it's going to, the only thing it's going to really negatively affect is the education that's fake education anyways. And so like <laughs> things like online discussion posts, reading or not responses, online discussion post responses to particular topics, 
these sorts of things are kind of fluffy things to prove to higher learning accreditation boards that like this is an engaged you know discussion uh, but students know better. Students know that the discussion boards are what's the man, minimum amount of things I have to do in order to get my points for this week. Uh, they don't view it as like an actual discussion with fellow students. And this is unfortunate, uh, but it just may be like a matter of reality that like certain modalities are different and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just true. Uh, so things like that, I think, are gone, uh, in my opinion. Like you, there's no uh, permanent solution. Uh, you know, so there are AI detectors out there that detect AI writing, but if you make enough modifications yourself, like just change a few of the words, or you just copy basically the same idea, it won't get caught by any detectors. And also, you know, you can have, it's like an arms race. You could have anti-detector mm -hmm. uh, translators, things like that. Uh, students mm -hmm. already do things like that, try to try to get around things. So uh, it's just not, uh, I don't think that there's any way to deal with like the wave of AI that's coming. And so what needs to be done instead, I think, is we just need to move back to like what better education was. And better education is actually not impacted by AI very much. Here's what better education looks like. You have a class, students come to lecture if they want to. Uh, they learn things from your lectures and from the assigned readings. You give them like little homeworks that they can do to check their own understanding, but not necessarily have them as any major part of the grade at all. Uh, certainly not more than 10% of the grade. And then you give them, uh, you know, two or three exams or in-class essays that make up the entire grade. That's what good education uh, was for hundreds of years. I think it's been moved away from because students don't like it and faculty are in increasingly dependent on students liking their classes to, you know, keep jobs or get jobs in the first place and things like that. Uh, and I actually think like good students do like it. And so I know this sort of like learning still exists in a lot of like European countries, for example. I have a friend who went to uh, his college of Sciences Po in France. And he said that's how they do their classes is they learn for a semester and then uh, the professor gives them two essays uh, to write at the end of the course and it's pass fail based on whether or not you succeeded those two essays. And the students who come and they do the learning and they read the readings uh, do pass and the students who don't don't. Uh, and you don't have to worry about AI then as long as you're not letting people like use their phones, maybe check phones at the door, uh, you know, don't let someone disappear to the bathroom for 30 minutes like, uh, you know, all these classic things of like phones but uh, apart from that, you're pretty much safe from AI. So to me, this just gets rid of fluff, homework, assignments, things that we kind of already knew were nonsense, but we did anyways because we could kind of pretend that they weren't. So I'm not really anti-AI in education. I'm not too worried about it because I think it'll just make good education continue to thrive. Bad education is just going to be debunked, basically. Yeah, right away when you showed me it, I just thought, we're going to go back to 1956 style. You have a midterm and a final. Like you said, come to class if you want. I'm not adverse to having some homework and possibly even the ones that AI can be used with to, uh, but the students are on their own for what I call those gimme points, the points that I expect them to get. So let's just say a course is 50% of gimme points and then midterm and final, or maybe it's 30% of gimme points sure. where we have some structure, but they're totally expected to get the right answer yeah. that they will get 100% of those 30 points and then there's 70 points left over for midterm final now what this does impact <laughs> is classes that are heavy on essays and so that might be the response to like well what about essay classes well there's two fixes for essay classes one is to have very difficult uh sorry for figures so. let's let right, let's I'll, let I'll our Justin philosopher like, okay. get in here he's the one that does First the most all, reading yeah stuff. Um, <laughs> I think you both are off the mark when you say that this will we'll move back to classes where you can come if you want to um AI uh, will actually make it be the case 
I think that um, we will prize more um, small group discussions in class because those are the kinds of things like a seminar like uh, where we have um, teaching undergrad classes more like grad, the way grad seminars are taught um, where you expect people to con uh, have uh, contribute to the discussion sure. in class. Yeah. Back to um, I still consider that a lecture, but yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. I, uh, I know what you mean. But uh, it's it's this in class, in person, back and forth. It's not a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. yeah. That um, that and that's actually uh, not going to be impacted very uh, as much, at least right away, by AI. So, and that also gives the instructor um, a better sense of what to expect from that student's essay. So, if somebody like you know. If, uh, you know, Peter's talking in two word sentences when we have class discussions and then he turns in this uh, mellifluous essay, right, uh, you know, um, then I, then you might, that might raise some flags. So I think it, it actually gives an incentive for professors to get to know the yeah, capabilities of their students point. independently of the essays that they are, uh, they are going to critique. Um, you know, I know for a fact that like there's, that I do this already and like, one of the biggest tells to me that somebody has plagiarized a paper is if someone uses a semicolon correctly, I immediately go like, oh, okay, uh, this might be, this might be a problem. So um, remove semicolon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, uh, but I do think you, you are both right that, um, you know, the sky isn't falling and that, um, and it, personally, as somebody who assigns mostly essays, I don't think this is going to impact me very much at all um, because the essays that I assign are, uh, very specific, and they require a student to do something with um, stuff from the text. Uh, I can usually tell when somebody writes, um, you know, I've had students do this, uh, where they get essays from online, or uh, it's, it's usually very obvious to me when somebody is uh, plagiarizing. And if I think if you write your prompts specific enough, and you could do this and you make him do it in class too. Um, I think it would be very, it would be more difficult for an AI to um, crank stuff out that would be convincing in that case than it would be in a general, like write a response to Faust yeah. In case. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And my, my comment that I was gonna make that I think is similar on the same line is you, you can have very difficult essays, which they, I still can't do that. I still can't do a research paper with like multiple citations and things like that. But like that's currently out of reach. I don't think it will be forever, by the way, but it's currently out of reach. Um, and then, so that's one way. The other way is in-class essays are still an option, right? Like I did this for my AP English class in high school is our final was uh, we were told, Hey, your essay is going to be on this chapter, this book, you know, that sort of thing that we would be given the topic, but not told what it was going to be. And then in class you get the essay prompt and, you know, you can't do a 20 page essay in final time. And so that kind of stinks if that's what you really want to grade. But honestly, uh, like if it's not a research paper, uh, which we already explained that research papers are fine. If it's not a research paper, why not have the person sit down and do a five paragraph essay about it? You can get pretty mm -hmm. much, you know, their ability to analyze text, and, you know, add their own thoughts, things like that from five paragraphs. Uh, so, you know, now the, the question will ultimately be is like, well, what happens when Elon Musk releases his brain chip and it can be in your head or you can have it on your glasses and <laughs> it can record Justin Clark's lectures and translate them and then respond to the lecture specifically and do it. You know, uh, it, it is imaginable that within our lifetimes, yeah, like a student will be able to come to your class and an AI will feed them everything that you've said about the class and like generate essays from them. But once we get to that point, 
honestly, critical thinking, unfortunately, maybe in to some people's view, but it basically becomes like lighting a fire. Like you, maybe you need it if the technology goes out and like it's a, a skill that you would need in certain instances. But if like everybody has a baseline, just has like the light switch they can flip on, or in other words, they have the AI integrated their brain that tells them how to like do things for them. I mean, again, you might view that as unfortunate, just like some people think it's unfortunate that people don't have survival skills anymore. Uh, but it's probably just like a matter of fact that those things like went away. And maybe at that point, higher ed largely would uh, kind of disappear. Um, but the only parts that will survive are the very robust parts that we actually need. And so I don't see that as a bad thing. I see it as a good thing. Maybe like long division. Yeah. Yeah. Like long division. Yeah. <laughs> well, you kind of jumped uh, to the big topic there, um, which is fun to think about. I'm into near term sci-fi. So I like that kind of stuff. But I do want to come back to the to the paper. Right. Yeah. Now. Let's come back. Um, just that right now there's at least a decent amount of credit or emphasis on the format of your paper, the style, the citing, the, to me, all of that's like going out the window. And, and as you said, uh, when in 1991, when I took my, or maybe 92, took my investment uh, final, it was a short essay problem in the blue book and it was handwritten and he graded it from there. I mean, so again, I see a lot of this, um, regressing back to what I think you're right is more good education that hadn't been, um, let's just say, altered through accreditation with good intentions, but potentially not as good of outcomes in terms of our students' abilities and skills coming out of school. Um, so I, I thought uh, Dr. Clark is <clears throat> Is uh, in-class writing, is that a direction you'd actually head? And I, I'm thinking they can still have some sort of word processor or we have some sort of device that they can still type their work, but it's obviously controlled. I would use it. fountain pens with feathers. Well, we could go fountain pen feather. Or... We're going to have to invent a word processor that's not connected to the internet for, for yeah. the students to well, do that. See, though, that'd be cheap. You know what's cheaper? A blue book and a pen. I mean, well, I'm just thinking of being able to read their handwriting. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, they barely can write. Seriously, I mean, yeah. you know, the typing. That's true. They're so used to it now, so I, I feel like it's some sort of typing device might be needed. But I think that'd be pretty easy. A typewriter. That's coddled. Like I was go. thinking about a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. that would be going too far. Yeah. No, there's a few devices like there's those like smarting things that like you can write or type on. Like there's a few of them out there. But, I would uh, still. I would want. Uh, I would want a blue book. I remember doing my essays in blue book. And I remember one of the things that I would sometimes do when I was writing an essay in a blue book is have to write another sentence in the margin and like point an arrow to where it belongs in the oh, argument, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, if you get a- It does take more critical thinking. You're right. No. Instead of editing your- But you also, you, writing in a blue book that way makes you show your work yeah. in a way that um, no. there's no work to show if you're point. just getting it from- you know, even from the AI on your phone or whatever. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That it does, it forces you to assemble your thoughts before. So with the typewriter, of course, we can just blah, and then reorganize it, cut and paste paragraphs, move them around or thoughts. But it does force you like ahead of time before I start writing this, how is this going to look? Like, what is my structure going to be? It probably does force better thinking on the front end anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we should at some point move back to the whole question of like outsourcing your brain, which is basically what I was getting at. Oh, I but, want to. But I, I think that'd be a good after the break. Yeah. yeah, because there's one other thing that I want to hit in this first half, uh, which is like, and I want to add another case for optimism because usually like people hear these things and it's the end is nigh, right? And that's, it's not <laughs> even in academia. You hear all over the place that like, sure. oh, AI is going to, the next big, in fact, probably the biggest criticism is the AI is going to take all of our jobs, right? 
journalists are really upset about this because they've learned that ChatGPT writes better articles than they do, which it does, uh, the average <laughs> article. Uh, and so like this is another worry that people have. And like to some people over some span of time, it's actually true that like your life could be negatively impacted by like artificial intelligence. Like that that's possible I, on an individual case, small scale, uh, you know, you or like a particular industry uh, could be displaced by AI in the same way that industries have been replaced by automobiles and computers and things like that. Right. There's a lot less uh, secretaries than there used to be. Yeah. Because we have email and um, Outlook calendars. And we can talk about how that's a good thing, because a lot of our listeners are thinking right now, oh, well, that means we're all out of jobs. Yeah. So here, here's how I've, I actually on my comprehensive exam for grad school had a question about this and I didn't answer it because it was one of the optional ones. And I knew <laughs> Brian Kaplan wrote it. And so I was afraid of answering it. <laughs> I think or it was, maybe it was Garrett Jones. But the, the question was basically along the lines of uh, if the marginal productivity of capital and so listeners, that means the amount of productivity an additional unit of capital can give you. And additional so, machine, yeah, machine, computer, whatever. Uh, if that becomes infinity. Uh, so the thought experiment is if adding one more computer makes you infinitely more productive. Uh, and we know that when people choose between hiring capital and hiring labor, they're looking at marginal productivity over price. Uh, what would happen to labor in that case? In other words, what would happen to people? And so the question is basically... If computers get infinitely productive, what do we do with people? Uh, and, you know, the scary part of the answer and the honest part of the answer is this, that no one will ever hire labor. That's the scary part, unless right. the price of capital is also infinity. Yeah. Uh, but they were saying, well, it's right. It's not right. It would have to be that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, you might think, oh, that's really scary. But another way to think about that is if you own in your life any capital at all, the return is becoming infinite or close to infinite, basically. Uh, and so if you own a stock if you own a house, uh, if you own anything like that, your return is going to basically replace your wage. That's a way to think about it. Now, different people have different amounts of capital. Some capital stocks go under, some go up. But the point is, imagine a world where like the average person could afford to buy a stock, which is going to just be income for the rest of your life. Capitalism is actually like somewhat close, maybe not like, you know, in, in time, like maybe we're still a few hundred years out. But it's somewhat close to providing the world that like communism originally promised, which is that like we're going to be so productive that you're not going to actually have to go out and get a job to keep yourself alive. Instead, you'll be able to do the things that you want to do. Well, the one thing you didn't say is the prices of those products become very small. Oh, yeah. So yes. prices fall to, let's just say, close to free or I don't know what that would look like. But yeah. Everything's super cheap. And you're right. That's yeah. where we end up. Uh, equilibrium is we just go out and live our lives and do what we want to do. And uh, we're living in abundance. Yeah. Now you might say, what about the people who don't own stock? But again, like, you know, rich enough society, you can like transfer them one stock and the returns on that stock for the rest of their life is going to keep yeah. them from. Uh, it just now, spreads like uh, you're, so you might be thinking, this sounds crazy. How would the stock do it? It's like it's well, it's because we're enjoying all the largest of all the computers that are doing things for us. Like that's what's happening in this model. Now, there's problems with this. And, now, and those problems. Yeah. And one of the problems is that people don't like the idea that we're going to outsource our entire survival, our brain, all of the you know work that we're doing to computers. The idea that nobody is going to have a job. People think about that for a little while. And I think rightly get concerned. That's right. why I think that's and a, so I, I, I tried to say and those problems we will get back to in, <laughs> after the break. Uh, but we have lots more things to hit. So Peter's just liking to let things out of the bag today a little bit. So we'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. 
This spring, we have an awesome uh, PPE league going on where it's philosophy, politics, and economics being discussed among various colleges and universities around the nation. This is all going to come to fruition with a national championship in Kansas City, our first ever. We hope that you'll like to support events like this, and we can keep young minds being sharp and ready for today's world. Okay, we're back. Um, <clears throat> so um, we need to address the problem that uh, Peter posed, which I think is on most people's minds, like computers, robots, machines, whatever, replace human beings, and now what do we do? Um, I think we need to think through that with uh, not necessarily um, uh, machines taking over the world, which is a different problem, right? It's all of a sudden they're sentient beings somehow and you know all the sci-fi Terminator style stuff. Um, so, but before we tackle that big problem, which I think is an interesting one, I think we need to go a little deeper. And Justin, our philosopher, has to tell us, what, what is this AI? How um, bad are we off? Uh, well, so let's consider the issue of like sentience, right? So I, I know AI is really popular right now, but actually this discussion has been going on in philosophy since uh, Turing uh, wrote his definition of computation um, in the early part of the 20th century. So uh, we need to be really clear about what AI currently is, because we say things like AI thinks like a human or whatever, but really what AI is, is software that is able to produce text that is indistinguishable from what a human could produce, um, right? That's what we currently designate as AI. And this comes back to um, what happened in the 20th century was um, Turing, uh, Alan Turing, who was one of the fathers of modern computation, famously said um, computers, and by this he meant software, are going to get to a state at which um, we should say that they are thinking, right? And he said, we should say that a computer is actually thinking and therefore actually has thoughts if after a 30 minute uh, interrogation, we couldn't tell the difference between a computer and a human, right? And so this is usually called strong AI in the philosophical literature. And this is the claim that if you can't tell the difference between um, what a piece of software is outputting and uh, you, can't, you can't tell the difference between that and a human, then we ought to say that it actually is sentient, right? And has thoughts, that's strong AI. And there have been a number of, I think, very decisive arguments against that claim. Um, so the most famous is like Searle's Chinese Room. Um, this is a Chinese Room thought experiment where John Searle says, who's a famous philosopher at Berkeley, he says, put me in a room. I don't speak any Chinese. But you can put me in there with a book then, and it has a bunch of pages on it. And on one side, on the left-hand side of the page as Chinese symbols, which I don't understand. And on the right-hand side of the page, it has Chinese symbols, which I also don't understand. But I know that if a slip of paper comes through uh, the slot on the door and it I'll look at those Chinese symbols, match it up with the symbols on the left-hand side of the page in this book. And then I'll see what's on the right-hand side of the page and I'll pick out the card and slide that through the outputs. Uh, so from the outside of the Chinese room, you are sliding in something with Chinese characters and getting Chinese characters back, right? Now, if that book is written correctly, Searle says, um, 
what you can do is write that book such that the Chinese characters on the left are questions in Chinese and the Chinese characters on the right are answers in Chinese. And Searle goes, but look, um, that Chinese, that whole system, me inside the box, satisfies, the it passes the Turing test. Yeah. It looks like there's somebody in there who understands Chinese, but I don't. I don't understand Chinese at all. All that I'm doing is following rules, which are uh, very um, clearly laid down in the pages of the book. And Searle's point is that that is what software is. Software is a series of rules that tells a system what to do, given a, a series of inputs, what to output. So Searle's claim is that uh, strong AI is false. The idea that just because we can't, just because a system looks like it is thinking, that doesn't mean there's anything actually intentional going on in the system. So um, we should put that out there because uh, there actually have been a bunch of claims recently, like there was a Google software engineer who was fired because he said, I think Google's AI actually is sentient, right? He, so he's yeah. gave it the Turing test, says it passed it and says, it's actually sentient. Therefore, since it's sentient, um, it ought to have some rights or something like yeah. that, right? Uh, and this idea that uh, we are going to come up with a system um, that it not only can pass the Turing test, but is also sentient, I think that's what's driving a lot of these uh, end of the world, uh, you know, this is a disaster claims, right? Um, this idea that uh, this software is going to have um, desires, right? A desire is something intentional. It's a mental state that there's something that it's like to be. Right. And um, it's not clear that these systems will have those things given because we know that we can produce systems of rules or software that pass the Turing test, even though none of those things are going on inside of it. Um, so since you brought up the strong AI, what's the weak AI? Weak AI was just the claim that AI is going to get to the point where we're not able to tell the difference. Okay, which right? is where it's at. And we're there now. Okay, right? so, so this is interesting because it relates to our philosophy of mind podcast. Yeah, which you should go exactly. back and listen. But like a materialist would say to you, well, we know what the brain is and why can't we just recreate the, that exact same thing out of like metal or something like that? And in that case, it must be the same as we are. Uh, and to a materialist, I don't think there's an escape from that answer unless you believe that there's a difference between physical brain and like the minds, right? Yes. So yeah. exactly that. So what, if you're a materialist, you need the additional claim of what's called substrate independence to claim that uh, not only is the mind just physical, but we can reinstantiate the functionality of the brain in a bunch in like silicon, a bunch of different substrates other than meat, right? Yeah, so yeah. Searle famously says, you know, we're meat machines and we actually know how to produce uh intelligent meat machines, right? Everybody who has had a child has produced an intelligent meat machine, Cyril yeah. says, right? Um, so um, it's actually functionalists, the versions of materialists that are functionalists, which say the only thing that matters are the inputs sure. and the outputs. Yeah, Those yeah. are the ones, and, and they gladly do accept this conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, so uh, people like Sam Harris say, uh, you know, crazy things about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll note that in the previous or in our show notes, uh, that previous episode on the philosophy of mind, uh, we spent some time doing that. And I think there's more to uh, uh, consider as we work through where we're at today and where it might be tomorrow. Uh, I think the whole desiring thing. So I want to make a um, get your thoughts, Justin, especially on if a computer can assemble 
facts from various places, at what point can it, instead of describing or narrating, like we said, that the AI can write a paper and kind of summarize that, at what point can it start to make a, a suggestion, like an, I'm trying to get to innovation, like something new, like here's the way we do it now. Um, I think of an entrepreneur saying, oh, but we can do it this way better. I mean, are we already at that point or is that a distinction? Are with... we already at that? I mean, what you're calling suggestion is just text that's outputted that you interpret as a suggestion, right? If I type seven times seven into my calculator, it suggests to me that it's 49, right? <laughs> um, the, the point is that it's it's a gigantic leap from uh, um, logarithmic calculation to the claim that there is intentional mental activity. Yeah, it's sort of like I don't blame or get upset with, or I shouldn't, uh, a baby when a baby cries. Like when my baby wakes up at night and cries, it's not doing it on purpose. Like this is a response to like something that's felt and it's like automatic. There's not an intention yet behind it. And so like treating the calculator, like it's making some sort of like conscious suggestion or an AI, like it's making a conscious suggestion rather than just like responding to the environment or like something like the, the various stimuli kind of in a sense, passively, maybe it's a slightly different with the baby, but uh, not not completely. It would be like blaming a baby for like crying. Like you shouldn't be mad at the baby. Maybe you can be mad or upset, uh, but it doesn't make sense to think that the baby is doing the same thing as like an adult who like walked into your house and started screaming at you. I think that I take it as kind of the opposite distinction, right? I think of the baby as more like pure consciousness, right? I think that the baby is conscious and because they're crying, I need to tend to it. Uh, but if my microwave is beeping, I don't go like, oh my God, I need to get my, my microwave is going to be upset if I don't get there quick enough, right? Um, yeah, I don't know if I agree. There's something that it's like to be my baby. There's not something that it's like to be my microwave. Let, let, me, let me use a different, like if I throw something at you and you blink, I don't think of that as like a conscious reaction. I think of that just like an automatic, like an ingrained reaction. And so I, I think like that's what I'm trying to get at. And I actually think the blinking and the screaming is actually similar, but we, maybe we don't need to go off on a tangent right now. Well, I think it's important because this idea of like it, there being something that it's like to be a baby in pain, like pain, right? That is exactly the thing that is missing in the Chinese room, like the intentional state, right? Um, and that's exactly what um, it's difficult to uh, say that the computer or Siri or whoever has um, okay. Does that make sense? I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th I think the blame thing is different, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you're right. We don't blame babies. We also maybe ought not to blame software systems. Yeah. You know, for the same reason. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. It'd be ridiculous if you had an emotional reaction to a software system suggestion to you. It's like that's it's just doing the lines of code it was told to do, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. So uh, Justin, will AI to kind of reframe my question in your language here? I think will or can do you think the ai uh replace the entrepreneur like is the output that we get from a computer going to be equivalent or can it be equivalent someday if it's not already to what an entrepreneur does um i'm sure it will replace some kinds of entrepreneurs right you can there are um you know wouldn't we call something like someone who does 
who's a painter or an artist, Fair an enough. entrepreneur it's, it, well, to a certain degree. Um, they're innovative and creative, but entrepreneurship is usually bringing something all the way to the market. Uh, so you have an idea, a scientist or a creative painter might have some idea, but the entrepreneur is able to bring that through the whole process. Oh, you're our expert entrepreneur in, guy. How in would a, you say Kersner or somebody else? So in a like material beginning to end phase, certainly an AI could do the job of an entrepreneur, but in an, in an economic category sense, there's always going to be a person behind that. And so one thing that Kersner says is that uh, if you hire someone else to make a discovery and implement that discovery and do the whole entrepreneurship, then it's that person is not actually the entrepreneur. You are the entrepreneur for hiring them. And so to Kersner, for every discovery, there's one discoverer. And yeah, I think ultimately you would regress all of them to a person uh, and that's possible. But in some real sense, like we could imagine that like there's an AI system that like someone releases ownership of. And it discovers new products and sells those products on the market. I think that's possible uh, to do all that. Once we have factories that respond to AI, yeah, I mean, there's there's no reason we would have to wait for a human to invent something and produce it. Uh, and I think I think an AI could do it. Absolutely. So you're saying it, the entrepreneur could be substituted. Uh, I'm saying that or we, is, we or could all, we could always um, we could always point to a person and say they're the ultimate entrepreneur for all of these things. Uh, just like we could say Satoshi is the entrepreneur of Bitcoin, for example. Uh, but the things that people are building on, on top of Bitcoin, those aren't Satoshi, but in a way we can credit them to Satoshi. In the same way, uh, sure, an AI system could do a bunch of things and discover a bunch of things, even after its inventor is dead, that would do jobs that entrepreneurs otherwise would do. I think that's possible. Um, for example, if you have already existing buildings... Uh, and you have an AI network that can send emails to people asking to buy the buildings and it turns in a, a commercial office building into an apartment building. That's a form of entrepreneurship right there. Uh, and you don't need like a physical presence to be able to do any of these things to send the emails or any of that. So yeah, like that's something that could have been done by an entrepreneur that an AI can do, but ultimately like there's a person behind the AI. And so if we want to say like, this is an act of entrepreneurship, you just point to whoever made the AI and put it out there. Uh, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's kind of sidestepping what I'm getting at. So the, uh, the, I went to the futurist conference guy and he says, there's nothing that a human can do that a computer won't be able to do. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. Um, and where I want to get to is, uh, okay, so where does that lead the humans? Is there truly nothing that a human would be able to contribute? And uh, if we, if we go on the baseline assumption that AI is doing everything better than any one human being could do. That totally squeezes out the human contribution to innovation and uh, um, entrepreneurship, creativity, whatever. Doesn't it squeeze it all out? Not he, he made the thing of a painting, like a Monet or something. A computer can instantly generate 3 million versions. That's And one will be the most aesthetically pleasing to the human eye. And he's like, no painter could ever do that as one of the examples he gave, for instance. So. Well, there, there's a few things that AIs could never do. Anything that's already done, that, that's number one. Uh, so AI can't be the first to do, do something that's already been okay, done. So we have historical contributions. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's that. Um, <laughs> and also it depends on how you split your categories. Uh, yeah, AI can create paintings, but it also can't be the first person to create the exact painting that someone else creates. And so like yeah. part of this is like a shell game. Like, yeah, AI can do accounting or AI could do entrepreneurship. But that doesn't mean it can do entrepreneurship in the exact way that someone else did entrepreneurship. 
uh, and beat them every time. I'm a little skeptical of that, that like computers will eventually beat everybody to every possible thing they could ever do. In fact, it doesn't even make sense. Like it, it categorical, it, it just, so yeah, you, you can like do category confusion and say, AIs can be entrepreneurs, therefore there's no, no human entrepreneurial role. Uh, I don't think that follows because every entrepreneurial contribution is in a sense difference. Uh, Justin, you have thoughts. Yeah, this is my point about when I brought up paintings. It's like you can have an AI do paintings um, if you tell it what kind of paintings you want it to do, right? Um, there's still a huge human role there. You have to tell the paint uh, the AI what kind of paintings you want it to do and in what style. You, right? you I, I'm um, glad you brought that up because this is like the classic like yes, chess chess machines can beat any grandmaster alive, but a grandmaster with a chess machine can beat all chess machines, yeah. right? Uh, and so this is like the classic. Uh, there's actually people out there who are doing AI art right now. So they'll feed yeah. something into it and then they'll say, no, take the inverse of that. And then they'll say, okay, make an AI art based on the top left section of this AI art. And so, yeah, that, I, I, I agree with this. This is a great point. And then the other point is, you know, for someone who says like, oh, there's you know, an AI will be able to do everything a human can do. Um, that's actually provably incorrect via Gödel's incompleteness theorem, um, which uh, was one of the landmarks of 20th century logic and is the proof that any formal system of which all uh, versions of software are, that is strong enough to do basic arithmetic, of which all formal software systems are, there are going to be truths in that system which are true and obviously true and obviously true to any human who, who can look at them but also not provable that is incapable of being spit out um, by a calculation machine um, so we can have a we should have uh, we should one day have a podcast on the incompleteness theorem itself um, but it just shows i also jotted down um, the Searle chinese i don't know if there's more to there, but okay, incompleteness theorem. Yeah, so there are necessarily going to be things which um, human consciousness is capable of that pure computation is not. Okay, so I think you guys are bringing this around to where I was when I was sitting in that conference before. I'm like, in some ways, I think we are kind of almost digressing uh, back to a time where the aristocrats and uh, people who were of wealth lived their lives. They lived in abundance and they woke up and they listened to art and they they made music and they did things, they brought joy with painting. Um, I think we're going to go back to everything's mostly free to get back to Peter's original comment on the marginal productivity of capital. That's what we're really talking about with this AI business, if they can kind of do everything for us. So we, we have all of our material basic and otherwise uh, satisfied uh, because everything's so cheap. And now we fall back to, oh, I, AI can make music, but they can't make my music. Uh, AI can make a painting, but it won't be my painting with my hand with what I had in my imagination when I did it, right? And so there's still human value, incremental value to sh even share with your friends. When I play the chess game, AI can beat me every time, but Peter can't beat me every time. And so Peter and I can play chess with each other and there's still value in playing chess. You see where I'm going with that? It's, it's, it's very relational. And I, I think to kind of tie this back to scripture, I'm not so sure this isn't heaven, that it's all about the relationships you have with people. You live in a material abundance, but there's still things to do. There's still a vocation to help serve other people, have fun with other people, whatever you want to call it. 
Uh, I don't think that goes away, even if AI can do everything for us for the most part. I think AI is not going to be able to do everything for us. I think that's uh, that's like wildly uh, utopian. And furthermore, I think a lot of the things that we do for each other are things that I don't think um, AI is very well equipped to do. One of like some of the most important jobs are things like plumbers and auto mechanics. Now you can have an AI that's extremely good at assembling cars from parts, right? Um, but it's very, very different um, to have an AI that diagnoses a problem with a motorcycle. Um, so there are certain things that are very, very... So, so you disagree with that? Yeah, yeah. At some point, we're going to have a little robot that can come in and replace parts, diagnose things uh, that is similar to what a human can be. I'm not talking about 10 years from now. I'm talking whatever, 200 years from now, but on the pace we're going. Yeah, so I don't so think let me, so let me stake out my position because okay. I'd be surprised if Justin disagreed with it, I guess. I think we could get to Star Trek. I think that it would be certainly possible to live in a world where like everyone has this little replicator that runs off nuclear energy and you can make whatever you want. They're like, maybe, in fact, you don't even need the motorcycle repair guy. You can just like beam a new motorcycle into existence. Right, whatever so that's, you want, yeah, I was right? And I think that like it's possible that our entire economy can be mostly replaced. Like we'll say 99% could be AI and like very little room for like, you know, the human touch or something like that. I think that's really possible. Now, does that mean that AI can do everything that people can do? I don't think that the, I don't think those things, the things overlap. In fact, a lot of the people get really upset about this tend to be like conservatives. Like conservatives will be like worried about this idea that People won't have a purpose if they don't have a job, even though people don't like their jobs, it provides them some sort of like underlying purpose that you still need to have. And if you don't have that, you're going to be in trouble. I know what they're saying with that, but we also have to recognize we live at a time in history uh, where our work makes up a lot of our social circles in a way that like has not necessarily been this way. So church, for example, used to be sort of like the primary, like central locus of social life. I'd say people's work uh, for a lot of people tends to be the like central locus of social life. And so I don't think it's like impossible uh, that this couldn't be like a good thing for society and for like people's search for meaning and things like that to like let work somewhat fade away. I don't think it will entirely. There's still going to be things that like, you know, it's just convenient to do yourself or that's fun to learn or stuff like that. Yeah. But I, I, I would agree with Russ that like, I don't, you know, I could see us getting to a world not soon, but where you flush nanobytes down the toilet and they show you where your leak is and they shoot out some little thing to repair it. I don't know why we need plumbers for that. Uh, yeah. I, I think that saying that is like saying in the 50s, I think we can get to the Jetsons, right? Um, which in some ways we are. <laughs> some of the Jetsons stuff. I remember seeing something where, you know. Yeah, some of the Star Trek stuff were yeah. there. Yeah communicators and the doors so you got the doors that is <laughs> doors holding, a TV, holding a tv in your hand i think it was one of the jets involved. oh yeah great yeah all right <laughs> let's let's walk around san francisco and tell me that, that uh this looks indistinguishable from the jets. George, yeah, yeah this is the oh you're talking the, the whole wide, picture yeah this no, is we're the not. widest you know well um <laughs> if we get a little bit of it then my predictions right <laughs> no I, look i i think that what's going to happen is that some things ai is going to take over and there are going to be a bunch of areas um, that AI is not going to be equipped to deal with. Um, I don't think that uh, um, 
especially areas that involve diagnosis and creativity, the, those things are going to be easily programmable precisely because they require something more than logarithmic uh, execution. I think you, I think I don't disagree that uh, creativity requires more than logarithmic uh, execution. I think you will be surprised by the number of things that we think are creativity, but are logarithmic execution. And so like AI art is a good example of this. It was always the talking point that, oh, AI will be able to, yeah, they can make shoes and, you know, run factories, but they're never going to make arts. Like this is one of the first things that AI is doing. It's like making better <laughs> arts than the average art student. That doesn't mean every human who's ever existed but, you know, if I want office art now, I'm not going to commission it. I'm going to get on the AI and get it for free. And it's going to be just as good. And I'm going to frame it and write perseverance under it. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, so I, I'm surprised that you're taking this line of like, oh, creativity. will up. haven't we seen that, like a lot of things that we thought were creativity actually just aren't. And maybe the domain of creativity is actually like really narrow. <laughs> no. OK. Uh, <laughs> nobody thinks that because you can replicate the david no it's not right? replication they're making new things the ai is actually making new pieces that aren't copies of other people's work that's the amazing thing behind it that's not my point okay nobody Sorry. thinks that because you can replicate the david that the david isn't valuable anymore which is what people would have said if you said uh you know if, if you ask people what was so important about the david they would have said it's beautiful look at it um, but it turns out that it's not just that it's beautiful that's important What's important about the David is that it was the thing on which Michelangelo labored. I think we are going to find out very quickly that a lot of the things that people want in art isn't just the fact that uh, it's pretty to look at. I agree with that. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. going to be that it was created by a particular individual, mm -hmm. that provenance is important. That is why we, uh, you know, we don't have uh, for as much as those little, uh, we have sometimes, so my wife got me a picture frame that she loads pictures on. I have it in my office and it runs through pictures of uh, my kids. And I, I love it. Right. Um, there are those available that run through like art pictures too. Right. But they're not as popular as like that's memory fair, yeah. things. Yeah. Right? So I think that what we're going to find is that the things that AI can do um, aren't going to sat, aren't going to exhaust the kind of demands that humans have. And humans' uh, demands being insatiable, we are never going to arrive in this place where um, we all our demands are being met by machines. Uh, yeah, we will I, always be making demands of each other. I, I do agree that people value humanity for its humanness, and that sort that quality, obviously, by definition, is not replicatable. And yeah, I agree with that. And so, like, this is like all, like when you hear of a great movie that has like a really gritty like production story where the production was like really hard and grueling. It's like that's actually kind of part of the reason that sometimes people love movies like that. Is like, man, they really went lengths for this. He almost died. Yeah, yeah, and, and like those things don't exist when it's like the computer generated the entire movie. So I, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it creativity, which, uh, you know, maybe you could say it actually is creativity. Like that, that's not the correct thing. Yeah. Uh, but there is certainly, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll concede. I think it might be smaller of a realm than you think it is, but I'll concede some realm of activity that is valued because it's human. Yeah. yeah. And that's my point with bringing up, I think it's going to collapse down to relationships are like paramount. That's the only thing we care about. The, our material <laughs> needs are met. And so I still desire things and I'll find new things I desire. And that'll be to have a conversation with Justin or, have, you know, whatever. You're going to seek out those relational things that are the humanness part, as you said. So I, I think that's 
where we're going. Um, I have an idea for a future podcast since we're kind of starting to run long on this one, and that would be what's the process look like getting to that point of abundance? So um, the recent example was truckers going away with uh, AI trucks, right? And so we got thousands of people out of jobs all at one time. You know, what does the dynamics look like um, as the as we move through this next, let's just call it 100 years or whatever? Do, is there going to be strife and more polarization as the people who are first to be left out yeah, um, point. Uh, yeah. without having abundance are uh, the low, no skill people or lower income people? I think that would be an interesting discussion that we yeah. can have. So, yeah. All right. Anything else for the good of the cause? That was fun. A little bit of fighting, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of thinking. So we thought for ourselves. That's the important thing. We did not let a computer. This podcast was not generated by AI. So we'd like to thank you all for listening. This has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. And a five-star rating helps other people find us. Otherwise, uh, be sure to forward this along to your friends or family that you might think is kind of fun. And along with all of our previous episodes, you can peruse and see what might look nice. Other than that, be fruitful multiply. Thanks.